Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Practicology Podcast. I'm Mike, and today Matthew is once again, as usual, with us, and he is going to be talking about Jesus wept and so do we. Matthew, from today's title, I take it you're going to get a little emotional today. Well, I don't know if I will during our recording, but uh, would you object if I did? Not at all. Our emotions are part of who we are, and God is the one who made us to be emotional beings. That is right. Emotions are fundamental to human personhood. A person has a will, a personality, and emotions. And while some people seem more emotional than others, or they express their emotions more willingly and easily, everyone has emotions. The Lord Jesus has emotions, strong emotions. One of the ways that we see that expressed in his earthly ministry is in the times that he shed tears. Yeah, that's right. And in everything he did, including in his crying, Matthew, he he really does show us true manhood even, right? Like, uh, it's not particularly easy for men in all, our culture to be willing to cry, is it? Particularly in our culture, it is not. You're right. In fact, that's one of the things to take into account in our ensuing discussion today. Men in scripture in the ancient Middle East were part of a different culture than 21st century Western society. And the normalcy the normalcy of men weeping was more accepted in their culture. Another factor in whether someone sheds tears may just be their personality type as well. Some people might weep just by hearing us talk about tears. I, I will admit, I don't find it easy to cry. It happens. Sometimes it catches me by surprise. It's not a regular thing for me. So personality and culture are contributing factors in how much we may cry. Yeah, and your comments on on culture. I mean, I just think about David in the scripture, and we get no sense at all, do we, that, that he's at all embarrassed about shedding tears. For sure. Psalm 6, I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Yeah, and there's Psalm 39, hear my prayer, O Lord and give ear to my cry, hold not your peace at my tears. Yeah, and other examples. So men of God in scripture wept, David wept, Paul wept, Abraham wept, Jacob wept. Second Kings eight eleven. speaking of Elisha, it says the man of God wept. What a phrase. So clarify this for me then, Matthew. Like, are you trying to say that we just accept that as part of their culture and it's not really applicable to us? No, not at all. I'm acknowledging that culture and personality are factors in one's willingness to weep. But first, remember that Christians are to be countercultural anyhow, and that's just our calling in the world. Secondly, there may be parts of my personality that are particularly tainted by sin, weak spots that I'm not just to excuse, but with the grace of God to work on and be willing to change. And thirdly, we're thinking of the Lord Jesus today. He's our ultimate example. And there are three occasions in the New Testament where it is recorded that the Lord Jesus wept or cried. And we're going to think about the tears of the Lord Jesus today and see what we can learn from those profound displays of emotions on his part. Super. This sounds like it could be a beautiful study, Matthew. So please take it away. Hey, and tears can be beautiful and precious. Remember Psalm 56 verse 8, David says to the Lord, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Those tears were noted and actually valued by God. And the tears of Christ are certainly beautiful. A willingness to weep is obviously not a sign of weakness because our almighty, perfect creator, God, became a real man and that man shed tears. Mike, I know you've got the words of Luke 19 there in front of you. So can you read in Luke 19, 37 to 44 for us, please? I'd be happy to. It says this, as he, Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. All right, thank you. This Luke 19 reading really touches our hearts, I think, with the tears of the Savior, and it will teach us compassion for lost and perishing sinners. Remember the setting. The Lord's approaching the city of Jerusalem. This is about one week before his death on the cross, so he's soon to leave Jerusalem for the final time, in a sense, at least for a great amount of time. He knows that 35 to 40 years after this, this city's going to be ransacked, destroyed, an immense tragedy. The next time he steps foot in it will be after Jerusalem has come through the judgments of tribulation days, uh, more suffering ahead. So praise is bursting forth from a few, but the Lord knows also that most in this city are rejecting him. And he wept. And the word for wept in this setting, it's a common word in scripture, maybe 40 times or so. It means to mourn or weep or lament or sob. This is the word that is used for Mary's weeping at Lazarus' grave, not Jesus weeping there, but Mary's weeping. It's the word for uh, Peter weeping after he betrayed the Lord. And so when I think about this setting and the particular word and the way in which it's used, the language that follows Jesus weeping here, I don't get the impression that these are tears just kind of gradually forcing themselves up and trickling out of the corner of his eye. To me, this suggests more that he burst into tears. So there's a real dramatic effect here. Some liberal critics of scripture who say that Luke's record doesn't really seem legit, that it's highly unlikely that Jesus would weep over Jerusalem when there's all this jubilant praise ringing in his ears. Well, they're missing the point. Norval Geldenheis in his commentary, he wisely responds to that by saying, it is such a superficial observation and that Luke is putting these things together intentionally for dramatic effect. The enthusiasm of the crowd is palpable. They're bursting with excitement at what might be it just might be a messianic entry into the holy city. But our Lord had such a penetrating insight into the actual condition of people's hearts and into the impending tragic fate of the city and the nation. Now, the implication from that, of course, the Lord isn't thinking merely of the physical destruction of the buildings of this city, but the people of the city and the souls of these people. Their future so burdens him that he bursts into tears as he considers their plight and their future. Think back to Luke 13, when he wanted to gather them like a hen gathers her chicks. That's the heart of the Lord Jesus. Do we ever have that passion for lost and perishing sinners? I don't mean that we're always to go around so burdened that we're weeping all the time. I mean, the Lord Jesus didn't do that either. But now as his time with them nears an end and their rejection is about to climax, his burden and compassion were so great that he burst into tears because this city's going to be judged and the people will perish with it and they're lost. Part 
of our theology of tears should include a genuine heartfelt concern for people who are dying in their sins. Sometimes I wonder, do we, do we fail to weep because we lack a heartfelt concern for the eternal destiny of our fellow men and women who are soon traveling into that great eternity? So let's learn from the Lord Jesus. Did Christ over sinners weep and shall our cheeks be dry? Let floods of penitential grief burst forth from every eye. Behold the Son of God in tears, the angels wondering see. Hast thou no wonder, O my soul? He shed those tears for thee. Hmm. So glad for the Lord's compassion for me. And yes, may we learn to cry uh, as he did uh, for, for those who are perishing around us. And Matthew, that, that was an occasion where the Lord wept at the plight of, of perishing people. But I expect many, as they're listening, are, are thinking of that perhaps more famous occasion at the graveside of, of his friend Lazarus with that little expression in John 11, Jesus wept. Is that where you're taking us next? Yes, thank you. And so John 11, a couple of verses before Jesus weeps, it says, Jesus saw Mary weeping. Now that word for Mary weeping is the word we had for the Lord Jesus weeping back in Luke 19. But then John uses a different word for the Lord at verse 35, Jesus wept. And then the Jews say, see how he loved him. I love those words as well. They're so telling. So Luke 19 gave us the bursting into tears of the savior of sinners, teaching us compassion for the lost. John 11 are the tears of the sympathizer our high priest, and his care for his own. Now here it's four days after the death of Lazarus. That, of course, is what spawned those lyrics of the Karen Peck song that you and Helen have probably enjoyed in your Friday Night Gaither video watch parties. And the lyrics are truly fantastic. Uh, you're four days late and all hope is gone. Lord, we don't understand why you've waited so long. But his way is God's way, not yours or mine. When he's four days late, he's still on time. Amen. Good words. Not only four days after Lazarus' death, but there you've got this visible sorrow of Mary and Martha and others. Lazarus was obviously a well-known and respected individual. And on top of that, he was a friend of Jesus. Jesus wept. Now here's the word for the, the same word that's used for the tears of Paul in Acts 20 and 2 Corinthians 2, when we learn of his great care and concern for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember a different word from while it's a different word from Luke 19, more importantly, it's a different word than, than Mary's weeping a couple of verses earlier. That's the contrast that John is making. Seems intentional. Indicates to me that in this scene, what we're probably seeing is likely more a gentle weeping. You might even think of it as silent tears. This isn't an arrival in Jerusalem amidst a misunderstanding, jubilant crowd a week before the cross. Here, the emotion has been building up in the Lord Jesus for a couple of days as they've journeyed to Bethany. He knew Lazarus was dead. Now he sees Mary and some other friends sobbing, and it says the Lord was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He's got that lump in his throat, and the tears fill his eyes and trickle down the cheeks of this blessed, sympathizing man as he walks toward the tomb. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Here it is in John's gospel that emphasizes the Lord's deity and makes such an explicit case that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and he still weeps. Brothers and sisters, the tears of Almighty God are the tears of your sympathizer, your high priest. Why is he crying? Well, if I could put it very simply, it's because his friend has died, and because his friends who were still living were sorrowing over that death. It's proof that he cares, and because he cares, it's a reminder that whatever your burden is today, he feels your pain too. 
He cares. I know that he does because he wept. The sorrows of his friends touch his heart. A glorious resurrection of the dead miracle doesn't start in a heart of stone. The Lord's heart was touched. What a contrast with, with Greek gods, you know, that were so common in the thinking of people in that day. Last year, as part of our children's schooling, we read The Trojan War by Olivia Coolidge, which was a great way to learn about that story from Greek mythology. Homer wrote about that war in his epic poems, Iliad and Odyssey, which are like the foundation of ancient Greek literature, they say. And Homer's work gives that impression so typical of Greek mythology of the day that the gods ordain the lot of men to suffer while they themselves are free from care. And sometimes people subtly and mistakenly carry that same thinking into Christian theology, that God is like a stoic, distant being. And uh, if I don't bother him, he won't bother me. And like he's sort of unaffected by the sorrows and struggles of his people. Well, the tomb of Lazarus is just one of the scenes where the Lord Jesus shows us otherwise. This is our God. And this man weeps because he cares and he knows and he understands and he sympathizes. Even though the Lord knew that what had transpired was for the glory of God and that he could miraculously reverse it, he still felt their pain in his heart. He's deeply moved and he wept. He fulfills Romans 12, 15, weep with those that weep because he's the sympathizer. How well do we fulfill Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep? Do we remember that we're in the same family with suffering brothers and sisters? We're members in the same body. And when one member suffers, all suffer together. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Let's be conscious of the sorrows and struggles of our fellow believers. Let's be willing to put an arm around their shoulder, to listen to their heartache, to feel their pain. It's one way that we love one another. Remember in John 11, when the Jews saw Jesus weeping, they knew that indicated his love for Lazarus and his family. Now, even as I say that, I know for some of our listeners who really do have a shepherd heart, sometimes you'll find that overwhelming, this attempt to bear one another's burdens. It's like it's too much to bear. You can't carry everyone's pain. And this is where we all need to come back to the Lord Jesus himself. He can bear it all, and he wants us to bring the burdens to him. Matthew, thank you for bringing us back to the Lord again and again. I mean, even as you said about putting our arm around our shoulder, I'm conscious that that's actually become a very awkward and difficult thing for us to do with COVID and so on. And and yet, you've told us about those gentle tears of John 11. And uh, it just reminds us of Hebrews 4. We have a great high priest who is able, I mean, regardless of COVID or whatever, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeah, thanks, Mike. That's That's such a great text. And actually, let me come just a few verses beyond that scripture you cited for our final reference. Luke 19, the tears of the Savior teaching us compassion for lost sinners. John 11, the tears of the sympathizer teaching us care for his own. Now, Hebrews 5, I'm looking at verses 7 to 9, and the tears of the Son and he's teaching us the cost of obedience. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And part of that suffering entailed those loud cries and tears. So in the days of his flesh, this shows us the Lord Jesus as that blessed man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Now, this, this reference to his loud cries and tears, it's not likely restricted to Gethsemane. Hebrews 5 doesn't say that explicitly, but it, it does seem particularly relevant to that Garden of Gethsemane scene, to that night scene just before the cross. 
Luke tells us that Jesus was in agony as he prayed more earnestly in that scene. Loud cry, strong crying. It's the intensity of his voice that is emphasized and that catches my attention. There were cries that poured out of the lips of the Son of God as he pondered the work ahead, the cup that his father had given him to drink. Jim Flanagan in his commentary says, dependence, this is teaching us that dependence means submission and submission may mean suffering. It was so for the Lord Jesus. Dependence means submission and submission may mean suffering. It was so for the Lord. That's the cost of obedience. And I wonder if we really know anything about that in our recent Christian experience. Not that our God is necessarily wanting to make us cry. That's not what I mean. But sometimes he does ask us to do difficult things. Now, if he asks us to do something difficult, we can be sure that his spirit will give us the strength to fulfill it. But it still may be difficult and costly. And that costliness can be humbling. And it might bring us to tears. Our father sees those tears, puts them in a bottle. He gives power, Isaiah 40, 29. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Remember, Frederick William favors him. I love these words, even though they speak to me and challenge me. He always wins who sides with God. To him, no chance is lost. God's will is sweetest to him when it triumphs at his cost. For the Lord Jesus, the work before him when he was in strong crying and tears there in Gethsemane, the work before him was massive and agonizing and costly. It would cost him his blood. And he cried, but he was heard. And God hears us too. And when the burden is so great that you can't pray, the spirit is interceding for us. Romans 8, communicating with God and God hears that. He knows that. Hey, another valuable thing to remember about the cost of obedience is that the Lord Jesus paid the full cost himself, which covers all of our disobedience. Sometimes we've counted the cost and not wanted to pay it, but Jesus paid it all. Sometimes we fail to obey God, but the Lord Jesus paid for all of our disobediences. He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification, Romans 4, 25. His tears didn't pay for our disobedience, but his blood that he shed after shedding those tears did. Remember also, beloved brothers and sisters, that those tears of the Lord were confined to the days of his flesh. That implies that those agonies are not experienced by him now, nor shall they be for us when we're with him in glory. But for now, may God help me to count the cost in whatever lot he's given me and obey and walk faithfully, knowing he's gone the way before. There are tears in the experience of the Lord Jesus, and they teach me that cost of obedience, the care for his own, and compassion for lost sinners. Well, this has been a beautiful meditation indeed, Matthew, and I love that line especially that you said, a glorious resurrection of the dead miracle doesn't start in a heart of stone. And uh, that contrast with the Greek gods, I mean, how unique is the God revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think C.S. Lewis captured some of the beauty of this. In one of his Narnia stories, there's this boy named Diggory, and he's got this lump forming in his throat. He starts tearing up as he thinks about his dying mom, and he gathers courage to look up into the face of the lion Aslan that he's speaking to. It says, wonder of wonders. What does he see? Great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And yeah, just mm -hmm. beautiful. 
beautiful to see that our Lord Jesus cared and, and loved and felt so deeply and then was willing to, to pay the cost to make us safe. So thank you, Matthew, for this beautiful meditation. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, for joining. Uh, please feel free to subscribe if you're so inclined so that you're not going to miss any. And we look forward to having you with us next time. We're so thankful that you make us part of your life as we help make the Bible part of yours. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.